Yeah, and I, I feel, to be honest, like over time, Google is getting better because, you know, like there is this sentence that says like marketers ruins everything. <laughs> and the truth is like at first, you know, it was uh, when you look at the Internet overall, it's uh, it's called the web because, you know, like every website is kind of like linked together. So a more like the more trusted authority, the higher the domain authority is so a huge domain authority, but a website that just got created has kind of like shitty authority. The more like uh, Google is learning and the better they get at spotting all these kind of like fake articles or whatever, the better the ranking will be. So I 100% agree with you that to me, I think overall, the focus of a good article should just be like your users. If people spend time on the page, finding valuable, share it, then to me, you've win something and you, you will win big over time. You're listening to Paris Talks Marketing. My goal with this podcast is to dig deeper into digital marketing success than any other marketing podcast out there, to reveal the growth marketing strategies and tactics that are working today, empowering growth at amazing companies and organizations. Keep listening as I interview founders, CEOs, and marketing leaders from all around the world, primarily from companies in the tech and software as a service industry. Now, on with the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Paris Talks Marketing. Today, I'm really excited to be with Guillaume Mubesh. Guillaume is the founder and CEO of Lemlist. And Lemlist is one of the hot new players in the sales engagement space. Guillaume and Lemlist have taken a lot of different paths than a traditional SaaS companies take. And we're going to hear all about it today. So, Guillaume, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Paris. Super excited to share our learnings and uh, our journey. Great. So, tell me, why did you, you're a relative newcomer into a very, very hot and, and uber competitive space. Uh, what made you decide to jump into this space and create Lemlist? So, prior to creating Lemlist, I actually had like a, a lead generation agency where I was helping customers worldwide to acquire like uh, new customers through cold email. So mainly sending mm -hmm. outbound campaigns and trying to book meetings for clients. And whenever I was looking at all the tools, um, the tagline they had was more or less the same, which was put your uh, sales team on autopilot, which to be honest, is sounds pretty amazing, right? <laughs> but yeah. the truth is whenever, you know, like uh, you're in the trenches, you know that sales is all about building relationships. And to build relationships, you need personalization because you need to show that you actually care about the person that you're reaching out to. And uh, I felt like basically it was something that no one else was doing, adding this extra layer of personalization. So in 2018, we decided to launch uh, Lemlist. Three and a half years later, we're at uh, 10 million in ARR, more than 10,000 customers worldwide. And, uh, and growing uh, extremely fast <laughs> with yeah, more funding. That, that's awesome. <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk a little bit about the bootstrap nature of this, and then, and then I want to get into the nitty-gritty of outbound. But you all decided, so you started in 2018. It's only been three years. Amazing journey. You're already at 10 million ARR. Wh what are your goals next? What's the next big milestone um, in terms of ARR in what time frame? So we want to go to a uh, hundred now. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the, the goal is to reach 100 million ARR in the next uh, three years. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's going to be exciting, but uh, we believe we can make it. And are you still planning to bootstrap your way all the way up to hundred million? Yeah, to be honest, like uh, we're super profitable. Like we've been really, really profitable from day one. Now we're taking like uh, a bit more risk, hiring more people, but um you know, it's, it's just a team of 30 people so far. We're going to double the mm -hmm. team in the, in the coming months. But uh, it's, um, yeah, it's, we have really a lot of cash to spend. So we're, we don't need any funds. That's great. And I understand that you did have an opportunity to, to raise prior to getting to the 10 million ARR and you decided not to do that. Can you just walk us through some of the considerations? Because I know it's tempting when somebody's ready to write a check and you think you can accelerate growth, what were some of the considerations that went through your mind as you were considering whether or not to raise or to keep bootstrapping? 
So to be honest, like um, it all came down with a, a chat I had with uh, Nathan Latka back in the day. And uh, he was telling mm -hmm. me, you know, like uh, you're super profitable, growing rapidly. Uh, you basically like don't need fundings. And then I told him the only thing that could uh, make me want to get like uh, fundraising is to actually get an article in TechCrunch. And then he told mm -hmm. me, uh, you know what, like if you want an article in TechCrunch, just... Uh, get a term sheet from a VC and send, send it to TechCrunch and say, you're going to say no. So I started to mm -hmm. laugh about this. And then later down the road, I was like, okay, this is actually a good idea. So whenever we announced publicly, you know, that we wanted to, uh, to fundraise, the idea was to really like document on my YouTube channel, the entire process. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't know whether or not we would receive a term sheet, but if we would receive one, we knew that we would say no. Because to be honest, like uh, to me, money is not what drives the growth. Uh, obviously, like it can be helpful, but the, um, the best investors you can get are your customers, and um, mm -hmm. and and you don't solve like uh, all issues with money. We have enough money, and we don't know always. <clears throat> sorry, we don't always know how to spend it. So to me, it's mm -hmm. just uh, it's just about you know like focusing on the existing customers and growing. Whenever <laughs> whenever you receive like um, this. Uh, this offers, obviously, it's tempting, as you said, because it's a lot of money. You, you can think that it will allow you to accelerate. But what I found the most difficult in building a company is hiring the right persons. And to hire the right person, it takes time. To help people also level up, it takes time. So that there mm -hmm. are things that you can't really put only on money and rely on money. And for me, I really feel like uh, the way we've been growing, like we've been being much more creative due to the fact that we had a bit more constraints. And I think that constraints pushes creativity and that's part of our DNA, I would say. So I want to keep it that way for, for the next years to come. Mm -hmm. Constraints push creativity. I really like that actually. And I, and I totally agree with it. If, if you have practically a blank check, then there, there isn't a constraint on money and then you're probably going to make bad decisions because there is no real consequence to it. I guess there, there is a consequence when you raise money, which is dilution. And um, surely you must have thought about your own equity in the business. And, and when you raise a lot of money, you're diluting your, your equity. How much, of a, how much of a factor was that in your, in your thought process? Yeah, I, I feel like to me, the dilution is not always like um, the issue to a certain extent, meaning that as long as you keep the control, I think it's fine. But the, the truth is like uh, fundraising for most was getting money inside the company, uh, raising capital. But, um, but the truth is like whenever you're getting diluted, I think what's, what's tricky is to understand that people who fundraise start kind of um, a never-ending run. You know, so it's a never-ending race, sorry. So it's like you raise uh, a seed, then you're going to have to prepare to raise a Series A, then prepare a Series B because most of the company who are raising are actually spending more money than what they're making in order to fuel the growth. Mm -hmm. But the issue with that is that since they are not profitable, usually they are forced to raise even more money and the dilution keeps getting bigger and bigger until the point where you end up with a company making hundreds of millions and you have like a 2 to 5% of your company Meaning that mm -hmm. if the board decide to just kick you out, you're gone, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and that's definitely something we didn't want to. Yeah, I guess that you get on a path that you can never really get off of, right? Even even when you start by committing to a seed round, you're already probably as soon as you close that, you're already looking ahead to the Series A, and when you close Series A, you're looking ahead to the Series B, and I think that part of the whole design of this process is that you're supposed to actually burn burn cash and you're, you're, you're trying to get as big as you can on revenue as fast as possible. And you worry about efficiency, profitability later down the road, but you have to, in a way you have to outspend and just get bigger than a few of the competitors so that in two or three years from now, you're sitting at the top of this mountain or you're, you're, you're a Coke or a Pepsi, or you're the number, number one, number two, number three player. And only then you, then you start trying to optimize on cost and, and then make it profitable. I think it's a dangerous path to go down also because um, you, you can lose control and then the clock is always ticking. I think the founders are always having a click, a ticking clock in their heads. Like, all right, I know what this, <laughs> I know what this investor wants. They're looking for three to five X in the next say three years. 
and we need to maintain this pace and we need to keep spending. Another aspect of raising a lot of money is how, yeah, how and where do you spend it? And I think raising a lot of money, maybe not in the seed round, but I'd say series A, which is when you're expected to have good product market fit. And you're also expected to have something of a marketing marketing flywheel in place. A lot of that money is earmarked for basically to, to go to Google and Facebook and, and LinkedIn <laughs> to, to a smaller degree, yeah. which is that we have a formula where we know a paid search delivers this ROI and paid social delivers this. And a lot of that money is, is just plowed into paid advertising. You all have taken a different path. And from what I can tell, you, you do very limited paid advertising. You're still doing a lot of the, the growth organically um, and, and by building communities. Can you just talk to me a little bit about that decision as well? Because I find it really interesting. Yeah, so I think it's uh, at first it, it was part of our DNA because, you know, we started the company with uh, $1,000. So with a thousand dollar, you you have to pay the server, <laughs> and then you know like you're, mm-hmm. you're you need to have customers. And uh, and for me, uh, I've always been at first like uh, I would say a, a French cheap bastard. So I didn't <laughs> want to to spend any money on ads. And I thought like okay, we we built a tool to do sales prospecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm good at sales prospecting, so I'm just gonna focus on that. Eat our own dog food, and step mm-hmm. by step, you know, I realized that. Whatever I was doing, I could document it, create content around it, showcasing the campaigns, sharing it to our community or to people. And then step by mm-hmm. step, it started to create this community. People got much more inclined to look at what we were doing. And afterwards, I was like, okay, like uh, we already have tons of work with these channels that for me are like the most important one because they are linked to our user success. So I was like, okay, uh, we, we can always do ads later. And mm-hmm. I don't want to spend time or money on this for now. And, uh, and we will see. So for me, ads, it's, it has always been, you know, this uh, gross lever that we can, uh, that we can activate. Um, I feel like to scale from 10 mm-hmm. to 100 million, that's something we will like uh, look at and look into. But for now, mm-hmm. it, was, uh, it was really not necessary just because, you know, like uh, focusing on our users, focusing on the community was actually like the best source of revenue and growth because whenever you get this uh, strong word of mouth, everything becomes easier. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> also, I uh, I interviewed Aaron Court, who's the VP of operations at ClickUp uh, last week or a little, little more than a week ago. And very interestingly, ClickUp's story was very similar. They came, they, they were a relative latecomer to their category. They came probably 10, 10 years or more after Asana um, and even longer after, after Trello. I think Trello might've even been earlier and other players like Smartsheet, they came into really in, into the project management space. And, and on the face of it, you would think, well, what chance could they have? They focused so much on organic growth in their first two or three years. They didn't spend a dollar on paid advertising and they built up a, a pretty good user base of several hundred thousand paying customers before they spent even their first dollar on digital advertising. And the, the reason why this was such a great move was because they knew at some point that to maintain growth or to get to the next level, they would have to get p- paid ads into their mix. But by delaying this and by building this solid base of organic growth, then you can actually afford a much higher paid CAC, the customer acquisition cost, because ultimately what you or the investors are going to look at is what is the blended CAC, the blended customer acquisition cost? And if you're getting a big, big contribution from non-paid organic channels, then you can you can you can outspend your competitors later than in paid channels because your blended CAC is going to be much lower. And I think it was a great move. And I and I, I think also it seems to be the path you all are are headed down because at some point that that is a channel that will be a profitable channel, and you at some point you won't be able to ignore it. But the longer you, you can build up this organic growth, I think the, the, the more competitive you will be in, in paid search when you jump into that into the shark tank, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and believe yeah. me, it's, it's a shark tank. Uh, <laughs> I, I went to Google and, and, and did a search for Lemlist and all of your competitors are, <laughs> it's a very aggressive. Uh, I think you've probably seen that. Um, yeah, they're, yeah. They're all coming after you and everybody else. Uh, there is... It's, it's no actually funny. Yeah. yeah, it's actually funny to see, you know, like uh, Lemlist was, uh, when we created it, it was a word that didn't exist. So there were like literally zero search and zero results on, mm-hmm. uh, on Google. 
And, uh, and right now, like we have uh, our competitors buying our name <laughs> so that they can try like uh, to steal a bit of our traffic. Yeah. So mm -hmm. to me, to me, I 100% agree with you. But on top of it, when I see like, um, you know, early stage company who just raise money and that are spending a lot on ads, I don't think it's the smartest move because your product, especially if you're a SaaS company, will evolve over time and the retention of your product will also evolve. So sometimes I see people spending a lot on ads uh, mm -hmm. whenever their product is not, you know, to the stage that it should be for advertising. Because mm -hmm. getting a really cold lead from advertising is different than someone, you know, who've heard about your brand, know about you, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's uh, it can be tricky for some, but uh, but overall, mm -hmm. as you said, like down the line, it's, it's definitely something that can be profitable and where you can get a good CAC and, uh, and it's another growth lever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at some point in the journey, people are going to be searching. And if just looking at the numbers, there's a certain, there's a certain click share that goes to ads and there's a certain click share. Still the majority, thankfully, is going to go onto the organic non-paid listings. Um, but at some point you really just need to be everywhere. That also means to be at the top of the page with the ads. Um, and one, one thing that, um, but what was I just going to mention there? Um, I guess the first entry point for you all would be just defending your own brand name as a starting point, just because I, I probably would guess that a certain, uh, a certain amount of people searching for you can be distracted. And, and these competitors are probably intercepting uh, a fair chunk of your navigational search intent, people that, that are trying to get to you, but they, they, could, they, could get, uh, they could get intercepted and picked off by these competitors. So defending your brand is probably funny, the, the first point. Yeah. <laughs> we can make something funny out of it. Like, uh, you know, like we were forced to, uh, to pay Google to, <laughs> to showcase because yeah. our competitors try, <laughs> trying to buy our name. Yeah. But I totally understand what you're saying that if, if a SaaS company is an early enough stage where you, you haven't really nailed product market fit, then the only ads you should be spending, you actually, I think the best mindset is what is the smallest amount we can spend if we really just need to get the traffic uh, into our product so that we can test and keep iterating the product to get closer to product market fit, then we should be looking at what is the smallest amount we can spend in order to get different types of users and validate or invalidate certain hypotheses about the product. But you shouldn't certainly be looking to scale because to me that that's all going to be uh, spend that the ROI on that spend is, is for product market fit. It's not for scale. Um, and that also indicates that if if a company is spending a lot to establish product market fit, and then they are ignoring their organic channels, and and I've seen this with a lot of SaaS companies, and I and I still see it that this is this is the fastest way to turn on instant traffic, so they just do it. And once you get onto that, it's very hard to make serious investments in SEO and content marketing. And if you come back to it later, um, it's just you're you're behind the eight ball, so to speak. Um, let's talk about your, your SEO and organic. And I think that you, you mentioned that you heard my conversation with Dimitri and he's an absolute guru in <laughs> SEO. Sounds like you all are really taking a look at keywords and, and organic rankings. And I, I checked you, I checked out some statistics on Hrefs and you all are, this is the, the beautiful hockey stick graph that you always want to see because since, since you all started, it has been a constant upward slope of, referring domains and organic traffic. It looks like you all are probably approaching close to 10,000 uh, visits per month from purely from organic. Can you talk to me about your SEO approach and what has worked? Yeah, so to be honest, we started uh, without SEO. Uh, at first, mm -hmm. it was just about writing the, the most valuable pieces of content and we knew nothing about SEO. And our goal was really just trying to get as much shares as possible. And uh, step by step, you know, like um, I think an important factor that a lot of people don't always look at is, uh, you know, like the, the domain authority. So how trusted your domain is. And it goes with age. It goes with the number of backlinks you get. It goes with all of these things. So to me, it was just at some point we wanted to position ourselves really, you know, like uh, as uh, the leader in the sales uh, enablement category. So we decided to, to basically like... Uh, start spending time on, okay, what are people really searching online? How could we write the best articles to answer other questions? And we tested a lot of different approach 
by sharing our articles either in our newsletter or in our community to kind of like get a sense of what was working and what was interesting our community first before writing the content and then after that like start to write the content and uh, and see whether or not you know like this was working but to me mm -hmm. seo in general like uh, it's it's not something we i would say that we we invested heavily on it went a bit like step by step and i feel mm -hmm. like um, the more word of mouth we got the more backlink we started to get which meant that each of our articles started to rank even better And at the same time, we also like our team also really leveled up in terms of uh, how to write a good article for SEO. And step by step, we started to rank for long tail keywords. Then we mm -hmm. used like this basically long tail keywords to rank for maybe like uh, more competitive keywords. And step by step, we kind of like established uh, our brand and uh, and the traffic mm -hmm. organically like, started to grow a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll just I'll just call out one example here that I think is really impressive that you all are ranking on page one for keywords like look for email, looking for email address, also follow up email template. So I think in this space, um, there's so there's so much intent around people trying to crack outbound marketing from different angles. What's the best What's the best follow up? Uh, how do I improve my open rates or effective subject lines or all these things. And if, if you go down this long tail, the further down the long tail you go, the less competitive it gets and the more opportunities there are to create great content. And I think that you're right if you do focus not entirely just on simply keywords and keyword volumes, but if you really just understand the problems that your customers have that you're solving for, and if you're actually even going to maybe going to your customer success team and asking, what, what are some of the interesting problems that people are having that are they're communicating with you that often can be great blog content and i believe now more than ever that uh, that if you create a great piece of content regardless of the keywords google will reward you with traffic and it you may not be ranked number one it may be for a keyword that you never even expected maybe it's it's a hundred keywords that 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 don't even come up in any keyword research tool but um but i think the traffic will come Yeah, and I, I feel, to be honest, like over time, Google is getting better because, you know, like there is this sentence that says like marketers ruins everything. <laughs> and the truth is like at first, you know, it was uh, when you look at the Internet overall, it's uh, it's called the web because, you know, like every website is kind of like linked together. So a more like the more trusted authority, the higher the domain authority is. So, for example, New York Times get a huge domain authority, but a website that just got created as kind of like shitty authority. Mm -hmm. So whenever you would get like powerful backlinks from uh, this company or top website, you would start Google, like uh, like uh, start to see you as a trusted source. So you would start being like a uh, better rank, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth is like, we started to see more and more marketers do link building. So going after links on Forbes, on Times, on really highly ranked articles. And we have people sharing backlinks, exchanging all these things which means mm -hmm. that down the line, the first results on Google became, from what I felt, really like poor, to be honest. And the more mm -hmm. we, the more like uh, Google is learning and the better they get at spotting all these kind of like fake articles or whatever, the better the ranking will be. So I 100% mm -hmm. agree with you that to me, I think overall, the focus of a good article should just be like your users. If people spend time on the page, finding valuable, share it, then to me, you've win something and you, you will win big over time. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is one of the, the ways that Google's ranking algorithm is still changing, that links still matter. But uh, I, I do believe now with the machine learning capabilities, natural language processing that Google has, they can understand and infer the intent behind a query, even if they've never seen that query before, which is still about 15% of all queries Google is still today seeing for the very first time. So when you write a great piece of content, uh, actually, you're really trusting here that even if you don't get any links, that Google will understand that there could be hundreds and hundreds of unique keywords where this article is the, provides the best answer to that question. And, and it's not going to be because people are linking to that page. It might be a brand new article. Uh, and I think that that's the, that's the way to do it. And... 
and over time, the domain authority is going to grow. And then it, it does become a flywheel. Uh, as, as you build domain authority, you can rank content faster and faster. Yeah. And t- talk to me a little bit about the kind of content team that you have that's powering this, this engine of, of content production. So right now, basically, like um, more or less, everyone does content <laughs> in a sense mm-hmm. that uh, we also like, are really strong when it comes to building personal brands. So that's something, you know, we, we have heavily invested in. So the truth is we have a tool for salespeople and we have a sales team. So our sales team is really, really involved in creating the content just because, you know, we want to kind of like run really like experiments at Lemlist and then share the results with people. Um, mm-hmm. And in terms of content, we have like uh, our head of growth who's kind of like managing uh, the, the topics. And then we would have, I think, like uh, maybe two content writers uh, in the team, um, and uh, and the content for us is not just the blog because uh, after that we have also like uh, master classes. I have a vlog. I have like uh, so we have a big, for example, video team of about like five people. Uh, mm-hmm. We have someone who handles our YouTube channel, which is like pure video content. We have like um, yeah, it's it's content is quite big, I would say, because mm-hmm. truth is like everyone in the team would create content, even our CTO. Is doing a vlog, is uh, posting on LinkedIn regularly. So everyone is inclined to do content in a sense of not always creating the best content for uh, our users. Because for me, there are like several things. There are the steps that is maybe more down down to the to your funnel, which is about educating your users to become the best at sales prospecting, but also trying to make them use your product even more, which is more in the retention category. But there is also what I call the inspire phase, which is, okay, when, how exactly do you inspire people to take action? How exactly, you know, do you inspire them to looking into your company, seeing what you do, et cetera, et cetera. And for me, this part goes with um, the vlog that I do, my CTO's vlog, the post that we build on LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. And each of the, our team members actually built a brand on LinkedIn which allow us also to drive tons of organic traffic and word of mouth over the months and years as we grow. Let's transition now into, into community because I think this is also really connected with, with this content that you all, you all have a Facebook group with more than 17,000 members. And this is very unique for a B2B SaaS company to have a Facebook group that's this big and this popular. That's a sign of community. You mentioned LinkedIn, you mentioned uh, YouTube and and you have you have communities forming inside of all these major social media platforms. So this is clearly something that you've you've been able to have success with. How how do you think about community here? I think to be honest, like uh, community, like it's it makes sense. Like uh, you know, like everyone would tell you, like yeah, if you have a big community, that's why you know you're growing so fast, etc. So everyone wants to look at communities, but. Mm-hmm no one has the grind and effort to actually build a good one. So um, to give you like the, the example of our community, I spent basically like a, a, at least like six months posting daily on the community to create it at first. And then afterwards, I started to have people like picking up, replying, exchanging, etc., etc. But it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and this is not something you can buy. And the fact that it's on Facebook for us was really cool because I think that on Facebook, you're mainly with friends uh, and the tone you can use is 10 times more friendly. And we see a lot of people thinking, you know, that B2B should be like serious, etc. But what we think mm-hmm. is that B2B doesn't have to stand for boring to boring. So we want to make things like much more personal, much more human. And for us, Facebook was was really like cool. And on top of it, to give you an example, because Whenever you think about community, everyone sees it as a, a driver of growth, which is the case because you bring value to people. The more you bring value, the more people come to the community. The more people come to the community, the more customers you will have down the line for your service. This is mm-hmm. kind of classic. But then they don't think of community as also a way of improving your software. Because to me, it's kind of like a journey, you know? So it's like, in the community from day one, we've always been communicating in a fully transparent manner about, you know, like the fact that we wanted to create the best product in the world. And for that, that we needed help. You know, like we, we really said that, you know, like we need help. We need your help. We need your feedback. We need, 
And from that point on, we have people, you know, like coming to us, uh, asking questions, uh, giving feedback, helping us to build like uh, the best product. And we actually like made a switch at some point to think how could we integrate our community into our product to build a competitive advantage that no one can ever build or replicate. And uh, there were these things, you know, so whenever you start doing um, email outreach, the, the toughest part is to get your email inside the inbox. Uh, that mm -hmm. part is called the deliverability. And when you buy a new domain, you have to do what we call the warm-up. So the warm-up is basically sending messages to people, getting replies in order to see, to show, sorry, to um, email service providers like Google, Outlook, Exchange, etc., that you are a real human being and that you're not a spammer. And people, what they started to do in the community is like, hey, guys, let's put ourselves in a spreadsheet and um, put our email addresses. So whenever we can send messages to each other and start replying, so we will all get a better deliverability. When mm -hmm. I saw that, I was like, this is definitely something we could automate. And we started to build internally a tool to help people get the best deliverability possible, meaning that all our users would actually end up in the inbox rather than in the spam. And to do so, the system was basically taking our tens of thousands of users all over the world. We had the data about the domain authority and age of the domain. And we could basically like mm -hmm. send message between each users automatically. So basically it would boost for every one of our users who activate this feature. It would really boost their deliverability because every time an email is sent and ends up in spam, we would take mm -hmm. it and put it back into the inbox. Okay. So it would send like a really good signals. And the truth is like, this is basically proprietary because our sending algorithm and all the things we do are only linked to our community and to our users. So the bigger mm -hmm. we grow, the best, the, the better the deliverability gets. And mm -hmm. the fact that we have such like a, a broad area of customers and region. So for example, we have companies that are clients like uh, Zendesk, SAP, Amazon. So like really big companies. And mm -hmm. at the same time, we have also like a very early stage startup or scale up that kind of like uh, created their domain a few years back and having like this wide variety across like uh, basically more than 80 countries allow us to really boost people's deliverability and we've been able to do that only thanks to the community mm -hmm. and after that a lot of people tried actually to to copy uh, what we do but the truth is like they can't because they can copy the fact to send emails but they don't have this power of community so being able mm -hmm. to introduce you know like this this type of feature is something really like uh, unique that you can only do whenever you have uh, built something really strong and built really strong relationships with the uh, with the yeah, people. Yeah, that's amazing. That's that's great. And I I presume that everyone in the community has is pretty much bought into that, and they realize that if uh, as part of this community, if I want to enjoy these exceptionally high deliverability rates, I have to be willing to allow my domain to participate in uh, in this kind of system. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, and for them, it's seamless because it's just activating a function and they know that they mm -hmm. will get instantly like a, a deliverability boost. Mm -hmm. oh, that's, that's, that's great. And that's a great example of um, actually leveraging community for product, product improvement and competitive advantage. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about outbound now because I, I think when I think about channels, I think inbound, outbound, referral, and paid. You all are clearly have a preference to, to put paid out at some point in the future. <laughs> I think building this community, you must be getting a lot of re referral-based growth. And inbound is, is certainly working with SEO and with content. And then outbound, I mean, this is, your, this is your channel because that's what the product does. To what degree do you, how much of your current growth is driven by your dog fooding, using your own tool to, uh, to do effective out, outreach and outbound sales it's a it's a good question it's it's difficult to measure like a, an exact percentage just because like we use outbound for so many things so mm -hmm. for example you know like uh, we would use outbound to do like link building so it's it will help like for the seo we use outbound also like um, to drive sales which is basically like quite classic <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. and then we also use outbound to get like uh, content ideas so, for example, uh, what I do is, uh, and content ideas can sometimes drive 
like to uh, more customers. So something that I used to do in the in the early days. So I um, I basically closed the first uh, 100 customers of Lemlist using only outbound, and my goal was simple. I would reach out to people, and I would have like the, what I call the the networking approach. So the idea would be to say, hey, uh, first name. I saw like uh, that you were working. Uh, you know, at this company, really enjoyed. So I would put an intro line. So for example, uh, loved your last post about, uh, you know, the challenges about X, Y, Z, et cetera, et cetera. So just something to show that it was really personalized. And then I would say like, um, I used to have my agency where I generated millions for people doing like outbound. I love growth and marketing in general. I'd love to have a chat with you and exchange, you know, like uh, what the things that have worked really well for you. And I can share what has been working well for me, you know? So it's like really networking type of approach. And during these networking mm -hmm. calls, I would understand whether or not they are a fit for Lemlist. So I would explain, you know, like uh, the basic of outreach, whether or not like they should implement it, et cetera, et cetera. So if they were a fit, good, they can become customer. If they were using a competitor and they were happy with it, then I would just be asking questions, you know, like uh, what exactly are you struggling? You know, like you, you're using the competitor. It's totally fine. I mean, they do, they have a great product. It's cool. Uh, but what are the things right now you're struggling? And they would be like saying, yeah, my open rate is a bit low or I'm struggling to get like a higher response rate on this specific segment, et cetera, et cetera. So based on this conversation, I would basically get a lot of ideas to start writing content about. I would write like the best piece of content around, for example, deliverability. And then after some time, once it's published, I would reach out to this person who had this specific problem. And then I would send them the article saying, Hey, uh, you remember when we had a chat, you were telling me that you were struggling about deliverability. I actually had a chat with expert one, expert two, expert three. And uh, here's the article we wrote. Mm -hmm. I hope it will be like bringing value to you. Uh, have a great day and let's keep in touch. Just by doing these things, it's really like you, you start building these relationships. So people find you like interesting, like they know you're writing like the, the best content for them. Then, you know, like you invite them to the community. So they start following your journey. And at some point, you know that they will convert. Mm -hmm. And it also works by just, you know, like uh, doing outbound and doing interviews. So, for example, if you're a founder, that's something really great you can do is just to say, like, uh, you reach out to all the best head of growth or head of sales or whatever is your target uh, at the best companies, saying that you are writing an article about a specific topic and that you'd like to interview them. And by doing this, you're going to start building your network with the top head of growth as many companies, you're going to be able to write content and then you will use this first outbound as a social proof to your future outbound. So for example, mm -hmm. you could say like, um, hey, I had a chat with uh, the head of growth at Airbnb and Spotify and we discussed about, you know, like the latest hack and, uh, and strategy to grow. If you have five minutes or 15 minutes, that's something I'd love to discuss with you. And then, you know, you added mm -hmm. just a lot of social proof. You have amazing content. And it kind of boosts your entire outbound. So that's something we've mm -hmm. done. We've done a lot, and that we continue to do. And on top of it, we also use all our campaigns to create like uh, master classes. So we are selling courses and trainings for people that uh, that brings also quite uh, some revenue to Lemlist. And uh, all of this is done thanks to like real example that we actually run. So outbound for us is um, obviously it's driving a certain percentage when we talk about like pure sales, but since we're doing a lot of other things through outbound, it's kind of like generating a lot of revenue overall. Yeah, that's interesting. So outbound isn't isn't a siloed channel. Outbound is driving the other channels because outbound is driving community. Outbound is leading to your ability to improve inbound because you're you're able to do interviews, create articles, and go back and share. So that's that's fascinating, and then of course there is still outbound for sales, and um, let's let's dive a little bit deeper into that. And I want to try to understand a little better your own sales process yeah. at Lemlist. So when you've got, um, how does it work? Are most people coming through a demo, or are more people coming through a free trial, more product led growth? How does it break out, and how how are you mostly acquiring? Yeah. So whenever you look at the, the biggest chunk of our customers are pure self-service, meaning that they mm -hmm. land on the website, they start their free trial. And after two weeks, they, they are like, they can pay. So um, from that point, we have uh, from sign up to paid, we have about like 35% conversion rate. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we do demos only to people who ask for it. 
Then now what we're doing is basically that whenever people sign up, we actually like uh, are checking, you know, like uh, enriching automatically the contact. Mm-hmm. So what we are doing is that uh, we are checking whether or not the person uh, is from a big company, how big is their sales team, what the potential um, of the customers, like because the average customer value for us depends on the number of seats, so the number of users people get. So we're mm-hmm. trying to have sales team between like three to, uh, I would say like 40, 50 people. And that way uh, we can have at that point, like one person dedicated to do like demos. So we have uh, someone in charge like of the inbound demos. Then we have mm-hmm. like uh, the pure outbound process, which is a bit different, which is uh, our team reaching out to people, uh, making the, I would say like the, the discovery call, then setting up a demo and then closing. So for outbound, it's usually like three meeting and the, the time to close is uh, the sales cycle, I would say, is, is about like uh, three weeks, three weeks to mm-hmm. a month. So it's usually a discovery call, then a demo in the couple of days after the discovery call and then, uh, and then the closing part. Mm-hmm. And, um, and basically like the, the outbound process, something we've seen that works really, really well for us is that everyone started to build their personal brand, meaning that they write about um, a topic that they master. So all our sales team are, are going to talk about sales. So for example, give tips about how to write a good cold email, how uh, to be better at closing, all these type of things that could be interesting for our audience. When they write a lot of things, they get like first inbound leads on their LinkedIn profile because people visit their profile and then say, oh, Lemlis looks awesome, would love a demo. That's the first thing. Second thing is like all the person who interact but who are not connected, we can basically like add them on LinkedIn and then start a multi-channel outreach where we would basically like send an email, then send a LinkedIn message and send another email and a follow-up, etc. until we actually get a meeting. So by doing this strategy of mixing personal brand plus outbound, you actually have a much higher reply rate. From campaign we've tested, we have a difference between, I would say, two and a half to four uh, X in reply rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the truth is like, you add someone on LinkedIn, they start to see your content, they see that you are an expert. And then after three weeks, you send them an email. So they actually see you in their inbox. For them, mm-hmm. it's like, damn, I saw that guy or that girl. You know, it's like, uh, I saw yeah. their post, I saw what they were talking about. It looks interesting. So your cold email is actually not cold or not so cold anymore. And the reply rate you get is actually much higher. And uh, to give you a bit of numbers in terms of uh, new MRRs that uh, an outbound sales can do whenever we have, uh, whenever we have like, uh, it's, I'm going to call in, in ARR because that's easier, but it's, uh, it's around like uh, 40 to 50K uh, per month in ARR per, mm-hmm. uh, per outbound sales rep. Oh, is that, is that what each uh, successful outbound sales rep is generating through this approach that yeah. you mentioned? Yeah. So just so, to recap, so you're, each sales rep is responsible for building their own personal brand on LinkedIn so that they can increase the number of, of targeted followers and first degree connections. They have to create content too in order to do that. And then the after that, the 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 cold email, which is not as cold anymore, has a little bit of a a brand. It has a brand awareness associated with it so that the reply rates on those are higher. And are they also, at the time of sending the initial email, are they also sending a LinkedIn message to, to reinforce that? Yeah, so the way we do that is that the, the first step, so th- there are two things uh, I want to bump in. The first thing is like lead the, the people working in sales don't create their content themselves. So we have what we call LinkedIn buddies at Lemlist, which is one person mm-hmm. from marketing working with one person from sales. And they work together to create like the best content for their personal brand. Then mm-hmm. the, the step about the, the multi-channel sequence, it's usually like a first step is to send an invite. Second step is to wait three weeks because within this week, the person would accept the invite and would start to see the actual content. Then we send an email. Then two days after the first email, we will send a follow-up. Then one week after the second email, we send a LinkedIn message. Then another week after that, we send an email. And finally, we end up with uh, another LinkedIn message as a follow-up of the first one. And at the very, very end, we can do cold calls. Uh, but usually, like, uh, we don't do cold calls much uh, right now. But it's, 
-hmm. for very specific targeted leads we we can do at the end uh, cold calls. Mm -hmm. And can you share overall what that sequence delivers in terms of um, discovery calls booked? Yeah, so for 100 people you reach out to, we usually book like about uh, 20 meetings. Wow. So, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's about, sounded like around seven touch points over the course of about four yeah. or five, six weeks. Exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So, the so idea you, have is to let it, yeah. you have to let it bake a little yeah. bit, right? You can't go in too hard with uh, like seven days in a row, email, LinkedIn message, another email. Yeah, and the, and the good thing, to be honest, is it's uh, then it be, it's a funnel because it's like um, each sales rep should reach out to at least, uh, I don't know, 80 to 100 people per week by doing really like mm -hmm. ultra personalization. And once they've mm -hmm. done enough personalization, everything is automated after that because we use Lemlist mm -hmm. to automate the entire process. So mm -hmm. for them, it's just like, okay, how do they fill in like the pipe at the beginning of their of their week? And then after that, it's... Uh, it keeps growing and they can manage both the outbound and the demos. So they have mm -hmm. about like 20 demos per week. Then they can close and, uh, and go back to next step. Mm -hmm. And what's the close rate on the demo call to, to paying customer? Um, so it depends on inbound. It's, uh, it's much higher than, uh, than outbound. But usually on outbound, we, we can get around like, uh, I should double check because it depends a bit on the, on the person, but between like, mm -hmm. uh, I would say like uh, 40 to 50%. Oh, that's great. And I suppose you're, especially with outbound, you're trying to target only the uh, certain minimum number of seats because of the, the effort yeah. required. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think it's interesting too. You mentioned earlier about enrichment. I think that's very interesting because you can't just assume that only small companies are going to go through the trial process and only the big enterprise companies are going to request a demo because the way that people buy in SaaS now, uh, some people, even big enterprise buyers would, some may have a preference to do product led growth style and kick the tires in a free trial. And they don't want to sit on an hour long demo call because they know what they need and they just want to test it. And if you use enrichment that you can, you can cherry pick those big whales out of a, a pool of free trial users. And then you could assign it to a salesperson and say, Hey, look, uh, IBM or whoever just uh, just initiated a free trial and here's the person let's reach out and, and try to do a custom demo and vice versa too because you don't want to waste salespeople's time doing demos for somebody which might just be one or two or three seats and you also have to enrich out the the people who are requesting demos that really shouldn't be uh, you have to weed those guys out so <laughs> I also really like that enrichment step I think it's critical um, are you all using Clearbit or something similar for that yeah, we use a, a tool called Feelbit, but it's uh, it's similar to Clearbit. It's just mm -hmm. um, it gathers more data sources, so the enrichment is a bit more precise. Mm -hmm. Wow, this is just gold that you, what you've <laughs> shared with with me today. Thanks, thanks for this. Um, the the last thing I want to talk about is is you as the CEO and founder and your personal brand, and I think it, it's unmistakable that a big part of your success is you personally getting in front of the camera. Um, deciding to put yourself out there. Uh, I, I see so many founders and CEOs that like to be behind the scenes and stay behind the curtain. But you put yourself out there. Um, how much of your success do you attribute to your own ability uh, and willingness to, 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 to not fear any judgment of anybody, to get in front of the camera, make mistakes, be yourself and let your personality shine through? Yeah, um, it's. Uh, let's talk about that. <laughs> I think, like, uh, to be honest, the fear is uh, is always there. I'm not gonna lie. Huh? It's uh, mm -hmm. it's something that never stops. It's it's the same. I feel as the imposter syndrome. You know, like we we all have it. We're. I don't think it's something that goes away. As long as you know, like uh, in your mindset, it's all about learning. You will always feel. You will always feel as an imposter. But uh, but the truth is. Um, I think like when you go back to the essence of sales, it's really about these relationships, you know? And, uh, and I feel like it's really important whenever you build a company, you know that the company will look like you in the end. It's your company. You're going to put your mm -hmm. DNA into it. So truth is for me, I feel like people connected well with the tips that I was giving, with the article that I was writing, with the videos that I was recording. And it has definitely, you know, helped boost the growth. Then to know whether or not, you know, like what percentage is linked to the success, I think it's 
almost impossible because a company, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's most and foremost a teamwork. It's like, uh, yes, I'm the CEO, but to be honest, uh, all alone, I wouldn't have been able to do anything that, uh, that we've done today, you know? So, so for me, I think it's, it's more of a booster. So it's, uh, it's great for acquisition. It shows also like, uh, you know, like, uh, who are the person behind this company, which make it more human. But in the end, it's, uh, it's much more of a teamwork. And another advantage, you know, of uh, documenting everything and really like uh, trying to bring value is, uh, is you personally, it will help you build a lot of clarity along the years. So whenever, you know, I write an article about a specific milestone we reached, it allows me to really like put complex thoughts into something much more simple, much better organized and much clearer. And then, you know, like... Uh, because I feel like whenever you're growing, you never look back at where you come from. You know, it's like uh, when we reached 10 million in ARR, I wasn't like saying like, uh, oh yeah, the road has been great, etc. I'm just super focused. It's like the celebration lasts for two seconds. You know, it's like, oh, amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, what's next? <laughs> but the truth is like whenever you're documenting and whenever you're writing article, it forces you to look at everything you've done in the past, look at what worked and what didn't work, learn from these lessons, and actually be able to structure your plan for what's coming next. And to me, that's mm -hmm. the most useful part. So that it forces you to reflect on the past. Absolutely. And to, and to think about that. It's really interesting. Yeah. I guess, especially in SaaS, everyone is sprinting so fast and uh, maybe not taking the time to, to reflect properly. And that's, that's important. Yeah. Well, Guillaume, this has been fantastic. Um, so many so many nuggets that you shared with me today. <laughs> is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wished I would have asked you, or is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience? Um, yeah. I mean, if uh, I think it was a really cool chat, so thanks again for the invite and for everyone who wants to reach out, I answer to all my messages on LinkedIn. So come and join. <laughs> okay. So would you, people that want to learn more about Lemlist or connect with you, would you suggest LinkedIn for that? Yeah, it's the best place. Great. All right. Well, everybody, this has been fantastic. Guillaume from Lemlist, check it out. Um, Outbound is a, is a science now, and you need a tool like this to, to crack it. So um, thanks again, Guillaume, and I look forward to, to keeping in touch. Thanks, Paris. Take care. All right. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about SaaS growth marketing, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P, dot online. Have a great day. <laughs>